In today's gospel, Jesus speaks well of those who change their minds. Older translations speak of those who repent, but the current rendering, change their minds, gets us closer to what repentance involves. It's not so much that someone stops breaking the rules. It's that the one who repents has a change of heart, seeing things from a different perspective and acting accordingly. This happened to the son in the parable who finally did his father's will. And also it happened, Jesus implies, to the tax collectors and prostitutes who shockingly will enter the kingdom of God ahead of the religious authorities of the day. How specifically did the tax collectors and prostitutes change their minds while the chief priests and the elders did not? Perhaps the ones considered notorious sinners saw that formerly they had not simply broken commandments. They had lived in ways that cut them off from their community, thereby cutting them off from God. By collecting much more than Roman law required, tax collectors augmented their own wealth at the expense of others who could ill afford it. Prostitutes, likewise, put profit ahead of deep, ongoing, loving ties with their neighbors. Both groups had isolated themselves. Because they longed for something more life-giving, some tax collectors and prostitutes changed their minds, responding positively to Jesus' message, which promised not only forgiveness, but a whole new life, rooted in a God-centered community, rooted in love. By contrast, the chief priests and the elders were perfectly satisfied with their lives, thank you very much. They saw no need to change their minds and their direction in life. They were doing God's will, weren't they? Upholding the law, including the temple rituals God required. But they were blind to the fact that they too needed to change fundamentally. Like the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they lived in ways that cut them off from other people and hence from God. They were classically self-righteous, looking down on almost everyone for not measuring up to their standards, which they saw as God's standards. Early in this same chapter of Matthew, they were, in King James English, sorely displeased at the acclamation Jesus received on Palm Sunday and stunned by his actions in what, they, what we call the cleansing of the temple. They felt certain that they had authority from God rather than this dangerous upstart. They couldn't see the attractiveness of the new community Jesus came to build because essentially they weren't concerned about community. They were concerned about themselves and lashed out at this man who seemed to regard them as part of the common herd of sinners. Where do we see ourselves in this dichotomy between those who changed their minds for the good and those who didn't? Do we identify with the tax collectors and prostitutes, ironically the good guys and gals in this scenario, 
who saw the error of their ways and, to, and redirected their lives toward participation in life-giving community? Or do we identify with the respectable religious leaders who saw no need to change their minds and lives? The answer for most of, of us is probably some of both. However, the scripture is probably urging us to see how we have far too much resemble the chief priests and the elders, cutting ourselves off from God and others without even realizing that we were doing it. Often, unthinkingly, we distance ourselves from others, as the Pharisee did in another of Jesus' parables when he saw a tax collector in the temple and thanked God that he was not like him. We can all think of many we regard as other, as representing something that we are not. Perhaps the most famous local example deeply rooted in the American experience has to do with color, skin color, consciousness. I suspect that most of you with lighter colored skin had ingrained in you from an early age, as I did, that I am not one of that group of darker-skinned folks who were seen as so decidedly other and who up to that period had been, had been defined as such in the law. Sadly, this acute consciousness of color difference, which has led to the idea that there are actually different races, there aren't, that's an, in our minds, they, that can cut us off from one another. And, of course, is, this is still highly prevalent despite some progress in the last 60 years. We could debate about how much progress, but um, we have a ways to go. Whatever one thinks of the opinions and tactics of the Black Lives Matter movement, we must all admit that in the view of many even today, the lives of folks with dark skin don't matter as much as the lives of those with light-colored skin. That's still around. Somewhat analogously for many, it is not quite as bad for a hurricane to devastate Puerto Rico as it would be if that same damage had been inflicted on Florida or New York. Some in this scenario are more or considered more American than others, clearly. We might regard categorizing some as more important or worthy than others as a natural tribal tendency, but our Lord puts before us and makes possible a higher and better way, which involves breaking down mental and psychological barriers that divide us from each other and hence from God. Our tribalism sometimes takes religious forms, as it did in Jesus' day. We might regard ourselves as a moral elite who keep the rules others don't, or as an intellectual elite who have a proper interpretation of Scripture and the best insights into contemporary problems. Or even, and my colleagues could accuse me of this, we might regard ourselves as a liturgical elite with a superior way of worshiping God. Sometimes those of us who have been around the Episcopal Church for a long time 
looked, looked down on newcomers as lesser Episcopalians not yet initiated fully into our superior ways. Of course, the list could go on indefinitely, us and them. There is much about which we need to change our minds to repent so we can go in another, more life-giving direction. In his letter to the Philippians, St. Paul brilliantly describes how life in God's community, the church, can mirror heaven even in the midst of this earthly life. Following Christ's teaching and example, we can participate in the Trinity's own perfect unity by being servants to one another. Paul could not be more countercultural both in the context of the Roman world and now when he urges the church not to act from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you, he says, look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. That is what Christ did, Paul reminds us, and we who follow him should do no less. Ultimately, our interests are the same. Again and again in both the Old and New Testaments, we learn that we cannot have a life-giving relationship with God without relating to our neighbors justly and lovingly. This struck me at morning prayer the other day when in the confession we prayed, we have not loved you with our whole heart, we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Those two merge in, in my mind because when I think of how I've dishonored God, often it's in dishonoring my neighbor. These two go together so closely because when we distance ourselves in our hearts from our neighbors, we are in danger of distancing ourselves from God. Repenting to the, to the extent that we have done this is not just necessary for us as individuals. We must change our minds as the collective people of God who are committed and empowered to be Christ's body in the world. When Paul says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, the you is plural. We are to work out our salvation by eliminating harmful barriers, not only that keep us as individuals separated, but us as a community. Collectively, Paul tells us, we have the mind of Christ by virtue of our common baptism into our living, life-giving Lord. The good news is that we sinners can take hold of new and eternal life because we already have it. It is a gift to us out of sheer divine love. This good news sustained Paul even as he languished in prison. He rejoiced in the gift of participating in Christ's own self-giving, of participating in, as one commentator put it, a love that burns with desire for the flourishing of others, a love whose joy can be made complete only when all are included. None of us is totally there yet, so this ideal may be daunting. 
we can take comfort in the words of the biblical scholar Gilberto Golasso, who describes an ongoing process of conversion to which we are all invited. He says, Christian living is a process. God's timeline for each one of us is unique, and only God knows what the final product is going to look like. We do not expect an instantaneous transformation of our life's attitudes and actions, but rather an ongoing process of change that results from the ever-growing awareness of our need to be at a different place if we are to be true Christ followers. The process begins with our conscious decision to become reflections of Christ in our actions and reactions to life. 